Tonight on True Crime Island Special Edition. The final word on the Matthew Levison Coronial Inquiry. Hi, I'm your host Cambo. Grab a beer and pull up a deck chair. This is True Crime Island Special Edition. So, the final decision in the Matthew Levison inquiry has been handed down by Magistrate Elaine Truscott at the State Coroner's Court of New South Wales on the 5th of December 2017. If you're a new listener, I recommend you go back and have a listen to episode 4, where I told of the case of the then-missing Matthew Levison. I then did a case update on a special edition. In fact, it was my first special edition on the 1st of June 2017 when Matthew's remains had been found. I've been updating the case since and tonight I will go over the coroner's report for you. Now, I'll be taking almost all of this word for word from the coroner's report. So here we go. Matthew was born on the 12th of December 1986 and he died on the 23rd of September 2007. Matthew was 20 years old. Over the previous 12 months, he'd been living in a de facto relationship with Michael Atkins, who leased a unit at Cronulla in Sydney. Matthew is the second son of Mark and Faye Levison. He is the younger brother of Peter, an older brother of Jason. Matthew had been looking forward to his 21st 21st birthday party and Jason was about to turn 18. Matthew was a well-liked, attractive and fun-loving, openly gay man. His family gave him unconditional love and support. At the time of his death, Matthew had been working at a call centre from Tuesday to Saturday. Mr Atkins, 25 years Matt Senior, had been out as a gay man for about four to five years prior to meeting Matt in about early 2006. Matt and Atkins' lifestyle included going to work, the gym and partying at the ARQ nightclub in Flinders Street, Darlinghurst, on a Saturday night until about 5 or 6 o'clock in the morning. On Saturday, the 22nd of September 2007, Matt and Atkins arrived at ARQ nightclub with Jack Smith at around midnight. They left the club on Sunday, the 23rd of September 2007, between 2.15am and 2.30am, which was unusually early. The last sighting of Matt is recorded on ARQ CCTV footage, which showed him leaving ARQ with Atkins. The last known contact anyone other than Atkins had with Matt was at 3.31am on Sunday the 23rd of September when Matt sent a text to his friend. On Tuesday the 25th of September 2007, Matt was due at work. When he did not arrive, Matt's work telephoned his family home, as was the appropriate protocol. 
Faye Levison telephoned Atkins, who told her that Matt had gone out. Mr Atkins told Faye Levison that he had woken up and gone to work, at which time Matt still hadn't arrived home. Faye Levison left messages on Matt's phone asking him to call her. On the afternoon of the 25th of September 2007, Atkins was contacted by Peter Levison. Mr Atkins was asked to attend the police station with Faye and Mark Levison to report Matt as a missing person. Atkins did so that night. He said that he and Matt had had a tiff about leaving ARQ early. They had spent the Sunday together at home and Matt went out to ARQ on Sunday night with friends and hadn't come home since then. On the morning of Thursday, the 27th of September 2007, the police located Matt's car, which was parked at Waratah Oval in Sutherland. It was empty, but for some food wrappers on the floor near the front passenger seat. They opened the boot, which was also empty, but for one thing, a receipt. The receipt was issued by the Bunnings Warehouse at Tarrant Point. Now, Bunnings is a hardware store where you can get all sorts of hardware stuff. It showed the time and date and purchase details for a matic and duct tape. 12.20pm, Sunday the 23rd of September 2007. That Sunday is the day after... Matt and Atkins went to the ARQ nightclub on the Saturday night. The police then attended the store and obtained CCTV footage for that date and time. The footage showed Mr Atkins entering the store. It also showed Mr Atkins taking, making a purchase and walking out carrying a matic. On the 27th of September 2007, the police interviewed Atkins. Atkins told police that he and Matt had left the ARQ nightclub early. He told police Matt was not happy about leaving early, but when they woke up later in the day, everything seemed fine. He said he'd gone to sleep at about 5am, and woken between 2pm and 3pm. He thought that Matt had gone out to ARQ with friends on the Sunday night because they had left the club early the night before. He said that at about 8.30pm, he was with Matt on the couch watching television and fell asleep. When he awoke at 1am, Matt was not home. Mr Atkins described the argument with Matt about leaving the club early as a tiff. After the interview, the police searched the Cronulla unit and, amongst other things, seized Mr Atkins' car and mobile telephone. After that time, Atkins refused to speak with police. Having received legal advice, he exercised his right to silence. In August 2008, 
Atkins was charged with Matt's murder. On October 2009, after an eight-week trial by jury, Atkins was acquitted of Matt's murder or manslaughter. During the trial, Atkins did not give evidence. However, the record of interviews set out Atkins' version of events. His defence included the possibility that Matt was not deceased. From the 31st of October 2016 to the 4th of November 2016, Atkins gave evidence before the inquest. Throughout his evidence, Atkins maintained as far as he was aware, Matt was alive and possibly living in Thailand. Atkins told many lies throughout his evidence, which is set out below. On the 9th of November 2016, Atkins gave an induced statement to the police indicating where he buried Matt. In addition to obtaining authority to give Atkins an inducement, the police had obtained from the then Attorney General an indemnity for Atkins. The condition of the indemnity was that if Atkins told the police information that led to the recovery of Matt's remains, Atkins would not be charged with perjury committed during his evidence to the inquest. On the 31st of May 2017, Matt's remains were recovered from the Royal National Park waterfall. Forensic analysis of Matt's remains, which will be outlined in more detail later, has failed to identify a cause of death. In the induced statement, Atkins told police that on the evening in question, Matt was getting manky on drugs. Manky being a term used to mean drug affected. So he drove Matt home to their apartment. He said that Matt went into the bedroom and the kitchen. Atkins said after he he went to the balcony and had a cigarette. He lay on the couch and fell asleep. He said that he woke up at 9.30am and found Matt deceased on the floor of their bedroom. He told police that he presumed that Matt had died of a drug overdose. He said he, he, said he later saw a bottle containing GHB on the kitchen bench. Atkins said he decided to conceal Matt's death so that people did not think Atkins had failed to look after Matt. He did not want people to think badly of him. I am withholding my rage at this point. This is one of the most ridiculous statements I have ever heard. Mr Tim Gain, SC, Senior Counsel Assisting, submits that in the circumstances of this particular case, Atkins changed accounts, the lies he told and his concealment of Matt's location, suspicious they are as they are, do not permit the conclusion that it was any act on his part 
which brought about or contributed to Matt's death. It does not and cannot follow from a finding that Atkins lied, most significantly in relation to whether, to his knowledge, Matt had died and where Matt was, that he engaged in or was otherwise involved in whatever acts were causative to Matt's death. In the absence of any independent objective evidence about the possible cause of Matt's death, Atkins' lies provide an insufficient basis on which the coroner conclude that Matt's death was an event in which Atkins was involved. This basically says that after 10 years of Atkins' fucking lies, there's no forensic evidence anywhere that can pin it on the fact that he did anything. I mean, he's just buried a body and left the family waiting for 10 years, wondering where he is. I mean, this guy is walking free today. We will go on. So that, so what we have here is Atkins knew that Matt was dead, and he was the one that buried his body. He also knew its location. So from Sunday, the 23rd of September, 2007, to the 9th of November, 2016, he maintained he had no idea where Matt was. This is nine years, one month and 17 days. Nine years, one month and 17 days in which the Levison family agonised over the disappearance of their son and brother. Nine years, one month and 17 days of total lies from Atkins who reckons he loved Matt. Nine years, one month and 17 days of fucking bullshit. Then Mark and Faye Levison had to do a deal with this devil. Atkins was basically given immunity from prosecution for perjury and anything to do with the death of Matty in exchange for the location of Matt's body. As we now know, Atkins told police where to look and even went out to try and show them the location. After one unsuccessful attempt, Matt's body was finally located at the Royal National Park, Karanga Track, McKell Avenue waterfall. And this asshole Atkins knew all the time. In the inquest documents, they outline the lies Atkins told. It goes into eight it goes into 11 pages of lies. Atkins, he couldn't lie straight in bed. Lies about when and why Atkins left ARQ and that he was concerned from Matt's welfare that night. Lies and inconsistencies about Matt's drug taking. Lies about the state of the relationship between Matt and Atkins where Atkins lied about the status of his relationship with Matt. He maintained that lie in his evidence before the inquest, claiming that they were not having any relationship problems. Where Matt had told his work colleague, Kerri-Ann Weld, that he was going to stand up to Atkins, 
He was unhappy in the relationship and wanted to end it. There was also evidence that Atkins had become physically aggressive to Matt. There were lies about what Atkins was wearing to the ARQ nightclub and the whereabouts of those clothes. He lied and said he wore a white three-button shirt when in fact he was wearing a black t-shirt and the pants that he was wearing were light blue jeans. Oh, no, darkish jeans. The clothes Atkins wore have never been located and their absence has never been explained. Lies about where Atkins parked Matt's car on Sunday after returning from ARQ. Atkins was asked where he parked Matt's car when they returned from the nightclub. He was not able able to say. He ultimately said he was not sure which side of the street it was or what location, but but that it was in the same street as the apartment. In the interview, he denied being familiar with the location where Matt's car was ultimately found, which was near the Royal National Park at Sutherland. The evidence in the inquest showed that he was familiar with the location as he used to operate a vending machine at the basketball stadium at the Oval. Lies about items in the garage during the search. When Atkins was in the garage with the police during the search, he lied when he said that there were no belongings of his or Matt's in the garage. But Matt's boombox, the stereo system, was in fact in there. This was the boombox that was taken out of the back of Matt's car. It was like his subwoofer and stuff. There were likely other items to have also been there. Now, when they reviewed the search warrant video, Atkins can be seen upon entering the garage to bend over and look, and this in in the court's view and consistent with an intention to check that whatever there was was well hidden. It could be seen on the video. However, none of the police officers executing the warrant, including the video operator, picked this up. Lies about where about his the whereabouts of his old shoes. When the police executed the search warrant, they found an empty shoebox and a receipt receipt of purchase from Monday, the twenty fourth of September two thousand and seven. This is the day after the Sunday when he went missing. Atkins was wearing the shoes, and when asked where his old ones were, he said. He thought they were in the bathroom, but they couldn't find them there. He told them, oh, I don't know. I don't know where they are. This is absolute bullshit. Lies about what happened when he got home. Was he on the bed, on the couch, and who went into the kitchen? First, he said he went to bed with Matt, but then he changed that to he slept on the couch and Matt went to bed. And then Atkins said that after arriving home, Matt went into the bedroom and then into the kitchen and then back into the bedroom. Lies about the events of Sunday, the 23rd of September, 2007. 
The entirety of Atkins' numerous versions of the events of Sunday the 23rd of September 2007 given to family and friends in the police interview and into the inquest. They were obvious lies. They contain inconsistencies about times, activities and differing versions on when he last saw Matt. Additionally, Atkins attempted to provide evidence which was implausible of his gardening prowess to justify purchasing the mattock. When asked at the inquest how much he loved Matt, Atkins said, The most I've ever loved anyone. What the fucking bullshit that is! And that in September 2007, their relationship was very loving, close and beautiful. Really. However, in the afternoon... Of the 23rd of September 2007. Now, this is the night after he's gone missing. He's gone missing on the 20... Well, they've gone out on the 22nd of September on the Saturday night. They've gone home on the 23rd of September early in the morning in the a.m. Now, this is the 23rd of September. This is the afternoon at 1.50 p.m. and 2.30 p.m. He had had text exchanges with at least two young men who he contacted, apparently looking for a date. At 4pm, he used Matt's laptop to visit the Mardi Gras website and then then to the Ticketek website, apparently looking for tickets to the Sleazeball. At 4.10pm, Atkins then went to the Manhunt website. Now, you can imagine what the Manhunt website is all about. How much did he love Matty? At the inquest, Atkins said he did not remember using the laptop or texting. Oh, I just forgot. I don't know. This is total and utter fucking bullshit. Now, there's a bit about how Atkins tried to create false evidence. Here we go. Creating false evidence and feigning concern for Matt's whereabouts and well-being. We're back on the coroner's report now. Atkins deliberately created false evidence. Atkins sought to bolster his claim in the police interview that Matt had disappeared on the basis that Matt had done it before. Now, what this is referring to is a time in 2006 when Faye and Mark Levison reported Matt as a missing person. The truth of this, and as known by Atkins, was that Matt had never been missing at all. What had happened is he'd just moved in with Atkins, but he hadn't told anyone. So when he hadn't been home for a few days with his mum and dad, they reported him missing. But Atkins knew where he was because he'd moved in with him. He tried to use this as he's gone missing before, as he's gone missing again. What? This is just bullshit. Everything that comes out of this guy's mouth is bullshit. And each day before the police ended up executing a, a search warrant on his home, Atkins sent text to Matt's phone, Urging, urging Matt to call him or his mum, Faye, leaving messages professing his love and concern. The fact is, 
Matt's phone was found under the front seat of Atkins' car. He knew it was there the whole time. Now, the next bit concerns the interview of Atkins in 2007, which led to the exclusion of the lies about the Matic at the trial. Now, this isn't an Atkins lie. This is a police fuck-up. The most significant evidence that the police had in 2007 was the CCT footage from the Bunnings warehouse store at Tarrant Point, which I said before is like a hardware store. You get your tools, you get your timber, you get all that sort of crap. Now, this showed Atkins purchasing the Matic. Now, I haven't gone over this Matic thing. I did in episode four. It's what you dig up the ground with. On Sunday, the September of 23, September 2007. That was at about noon. So this is the the same day he's gone missing. He's buying a Matic and he's buying, guess what? Gaffer tape. Hey, that's not sus. That evidence became even more significant when Atkins lied about it in his police interview. So if you're going to lie about it, it does become more significant because why are you going to lie about something? To conceal it. That part of the record of interview ended up being excluded at the trial. Because prior to the interview, the police had located Matt's car at Waratah Oval in Sutherland. They had found the receipt from Bunnings, the warehouse, and obtained and viewed the CCTV footage showing Atkins purchasing the Matic. So while they're in this interview, they already know he wasn't asleep. They already know he's telling lies. Now, when Atkins was taken to the station for the interview, after failing to go there after work as arranged, see, he said, after work, I'll come over to the cop station. But he didn't. He went home. So, you know what? They were waiting for him because they know he's an asshole and they took him back to the cop station. Atkins was introduced to the custody manager and advised of his rights as a person participating in a voluntary interview. He was not under arrest and he was advised he could leave at any time. He was advised he could seek legal assistance or could advise anyone else that he was at the station. He was advised that he did not have to say anything, but anything he said or did might be used against him. He was cautioned that his answers would be recorded and used in court. At the commencement of the interview, Atkins was again cautioned about his right to silence. By the end of the police interview, Atkins had told police he had not gone out of his unit at Cronulla except for a 10-minute walk to Cronulla Mall at about 5pm. He told him that he and Matt had slept in bed and not woken up until 2pm or 3pm in the afternoon. Now, the interviewing police knew that to be a lie, and at that point, at least he should have been cautioned as a suspect in Matt's disappearance or death. That didn't happen. At one point, Detective Russell was in charge of the interview, and it would seem to have been an operational decision to not have cautioned Atkins. In any event, Atkins was told that the police had located the receipt in Matt's car and had been to Bunnings and obtained the CCTV footage which showed Atkins buying the Matic. 
Atkins denied going to Bunnings, denied buying a Matic, and denied having a Matic at home. He, he said he did not think it was him. Atkins declined to look at the Bunnings CCTV footage and the police did not pursue the interview. From the 27th of September 2007 onwards, Atkins exercised his right to silence. The investigating police at some stage obviously became concerned that the record of interview of Atkins denying buying the Matic would be excluded at trial given they had not complied with the legislation relative relevant to cautioning a suspect. So the part about Atkins lying to police about buying the Matic was not allowed as, as evidence at trial. On the 29th of January 2008, the police arranged for Faye and Mark Levison to visit Atkins with a listening device attached to Mark Levison. The task was to tell Atkins that they had been told that he lied to police about the Matic. Atkins admitted to them that he did lie, but told them the reason he lied was because he was scared of the police. They asked him why he purchased the Matic. He said that he and Matthew were going to grow zucchinis and he was going to use the Matic to make a garden. My God, the the listening device recorded evidence was played to the jury. The jury also had evidence that Atkins told police that he did not wake up until 2pm, which was obviously a lie given he had been out at Bunnings by about noon. If it had not been for Mark and Faye Levison's efforts on the 29th of January 2008, the prosecution would not have had evidence that Atkins lied to the police regarding the Matic at Bunnings. It must have been so hard for the Levisons to remain calm, sitting with who at the time they suspected of having something to do with their missing son. Atkins must have realised that the police knew he was lying to them. Despite this situation, he and the police continued to gather to his premises for the execution of the search warrant. There were a number of items not seized until a later date which should have been seized at that time, particularly the laptops. So key evidence such as phones and laptops were not seized by police at this crucial time. They also missed the boombox subwoofer speaker that Atkins had to take out of the back of Matt's car to fit his body in. Police also missed that Atkins returned to ARQ nightclub an hour after he said he'd left and went home to bed. This was on the CCTV tapes, but missed by the detectives. Also, food wrappings were found in the front of the car that probably came from a shop near where they parked the car on the night they were at the ARQ nightclub. Police could have looked at the CCTV footage from that shop and they may have yielded more evidence, but this was not done. This was another opportunity missed. So it's not only Atkins lies, but it's police fucking up the investigation. 
Now, in regards to the forensic pathologist examination and analysis of Matthew's remains, Dr. Isvan Zvent-Marie, forensic pathologist, provided a report dated the 22nd of August 2017. Dr. Saint-Marie recommended that the cause of death be recorded as undetermined. He identified no clear anatomical cause of death, noting the lack of soft tissue, the missing bones, and the condition and recovery of Matt's remains. Relying on the report of Dr. Donlan, Dr. Zventmarie observed that no unequivocal anti-mortem injury was detected on bone samples received. He subsequently rephrased this statement in the following manner. Most of the injuries present on the bones are clearly post-mortem. However, in the case of a small number of injuries, it is not possible to determine with the certainty whether they are anti-mortem or post-mortem injuries. And for the forensic pharmacologists and toxicologists, basically, it was impossible to determine with... um, if Atkins' account that Matt had overdosed on GHB was true. Professor Drummer's report confirms that while the use of GHB has been suggested, no toxicological test could confirm its use by Matt due to the following. A. The delay from the likely date of Matt's death to discovery of his remains would have caused substantial, if not complete, destruction of any GHB that might have been consumed, even in overdose amounts. And B, only skeletal remains were location. And C, any residue of GHB that might be detected in the remains could not be distinguished from natural production. And as such, there are no other lines of investigation to be pursued in relation to Matt's death. So, what we see here is they can't tell how he died. When they recovered his skeleton, there were bones missing. There was no soft tissue, so they couldn't do a toxicological test. We get to the final say from the coroner. Now he says, From what I have set out above, it is plain that I consider that that from the point starting with Atkins and Matt leaving the ARQ nightclub to Atkins' interview with the police and throughout his sworn evidence before the inquest, Atkins has maintained a plethora of lies. His account in the induced statement that Matt died of a drug overdose was also given in circumstances where Atkins knew it would be untested. Counsel assisting submits that Atkins' lies provide an insufficient basis upon which I could conclude that Matt's death was an event in which Atkins was involved. I reiterate Mr. Game's submissions. In the circumstances of this particular case, Atkins changed accounts, the lies he told, and his concealment of Matt's location suspicious as they are, do not permit the conclusion that it was in any act on his part which brought about or contributed to Matt's death. It does not and cannot, following from a finding that Atkins lied, most significantly 
in relation to whether, to his knowledge, Matt had died and where Matt was, that he engaged in or was otherwise involved in whatever acts were causative to Matt's death. The Leveson submit that circumstantially, the evidence supports a finding that Atkins was involved in Matt's death. Counsel for Atkins does not submit that a finding as to the matter and cause of Matt's death be entered despite Atkins' version that it was a presumed accidental drug overdose because Atkins' induced statement is not tendered as evidence of truth in the inquest and Atkins has not been subject to examination on oath about it. Mark and Faye Leverson submit that the cause of Matt's death was by smothering or choking which is not consistent with the state of the forensic evidence. However, counsel assisting submits that the circumstances in which the bones were uncovered and the likely damage caused during the earlier and later excavations disallow any findings in relation to the missing bones or damage identified by the forensic examiners. Dr. Donlan says that the hyoid bone and the xyoid bone may not have been preserved. The analysis indicates it was not not possible to identify the damage to the skull being perimortem or postmortem, and there was obvious damage caused by the excavation. What that means is from the remains they recovered, they have no actual determination on how Matt died. Now, counsel assisting correctly submits that in light of that evidence, there is no identifiable physical injury which would inform a cause of death, nor is there any forensic evidence that Matt died of a drug overdose as put forward by Atkins. Ultimately, the lies that Atkins told during the course of his evidence to the inquest, as with other lies he had told to a range of people, including the police since Matt's disappearance, give rise to a considerable degree of suspicion that Atkins had some connection with Matt's death apart from the fact that he had buried Matt's body. However, it does not follow from that degree of suspicion that I can find that Atkins was involved in any acts that were causative to Matt's death. The course of events in this inquest including its suspension while Atkins was tried for Matt's murder or manslaughter and acquitted by jury, and the evidence upon which to make findings is such that I am unable to positively determine to the requisite standard how or why Matt died. Accordingly, I enter open findings in relation to both the manner and cause of Matt's death. So the coroner just has to make an open finding. Recommendations to the Commissioner of the New South Wales Police Force was, I recommend that Faye and Mark Leveson receive an official commendation for their assistance to the police investigation into the death of their son. So Islanders, will that be the last word on the death of Matthew Leveson? Or will there be another twist to come? Legally, 
there's very little that can be done. So any action would have to come from that fuckbag Atkins. He's not spent one day in jail. At the best, he tampered with Matt's body after an overdose and buried him so as not to make himself look bad. After numerous pleas from the Levisons over nine years, he kept the location of Matt's body a secret and only divulged the location after getting immunity from prosecution. At worst, he's a cold-blooded killer, only out to save his own skin with no regards to anyone else. But he is free, not a day in jail. Atkins is just a fuckthetic piece of scum. After the inquest, Mark Levison answered reporters' questions. Faye and Mark Levison praised the police team working on the case. They said, We pushed them a little bit, whether they liked it or not, and we were a thorn in their sides and we weren't going away until we got our matting back. Mark Levison was asked if he felt the decision meant justice for his son. Mark said, In a small way, yes. Our goal was to bring Matty home, and that's been done. Mr and Mrs Levison said they were focused on being able to bury Matthew and were no longer thinking about Atkins. They said, Atkins doesn't matter. Our son was the most precious thing to us and to his brothers. Why would we worry about Atkins? Just give us back our Matty. So I reached out to Mark Levison this week to see if he had anything else to say about the matter. Mark got back to me and he said, Thank you for your interest in Matt. We really appreciate it. Not a lot to add. I guess you sent the full inquest findings. It's now published online. And in case, he did give me a copy of it. And you can find it also online. Mark went on to say, I read over the Coroner's Act again prior to court and expected with what the coroner had to work with, we'd get an open finding. Having said that, when you read the full finding, she has bollocked Atkins over 70 times all throughout regarding his lies, deception, inconsistencies at the inquest, in police statement, the trials, etc. for the whole 10 years. At least normal people can see what he's like. His picture is out there and other young boys are warned. That in itself is satisfying. The future young boys might be spared his coercion and dominance and sexual fantasies at their expense. Now, just one thing from Detective Chief Inspector Gary Jubilin. Now, he oversaw, oversaw the search for the body and the current police investigation. He said, Without this family driving and pushing, I doubt whether this matter would have got as far as it, as it did. It's a testament to how much they loved Matt, but they're not going to find relief from it. Well, Let's hope the karma bus goes boom fuckalunga and picks up Atkins on its way to fuckity fuckland. So that was the inquest, and as I said before, most of it was copied directly from the coroner's report. You can read the entire report online. 
I will put a link on the True Crime Island closed group page, so please join and have a look. If you don't Facebook, then just Google New South Wales Coroner Court and there you can look for 2017 findings. So that's all I have to say about the uh, final inquest in the Matthew Levison inquiry. Let's get on to some business. So Patreon have announced a big change on the way they charge their fees. Before you would pledge an amount and the fees were taken out of that and the island received what was left. They are now implementing a new system where you pledge an amount and then you are charged a fee on top. As I write this, there's huge protests going on and a change.org petition of which I also have links on my Twitter and Facebook pages. So please have your say. It may mean that I will abandon Patreon altogether, but I will give them a week to see if they backflip on the change. I do understand anyone that decides to leave, and I thank you for all your support. I'm now able to start looking for a new PC to replace the dead one, and I appreciate that so much from the uh, contribution so far. But you can still donate via PayPal, which may be the only way I'll do this in the future. My account is cambo at truecrimeisland.com and I'd love to give a big shout-out to Minna from True Crime Finland who generously donated this week. Check out a new podcast. I highly recommend it. There's, of course, the shop for mugs, bags and clothes. Barney Black, as I told you last week, is behind the boomfuckalunga wear, so get some of it on ya. There's a link to the shop from my website, which is www.truecrimeisland.com merchandise link. Beer koozies or coolers and stickers are posted out by me directly from the island, so email me if you want to buy some of those. Don't forget, next Saturday, 16th of December, Barney and Tara from Bloody Murder Podcast and Broderick from Felon and I are meeting up at the Park Hotel in Abbotsford, Abbotsford, Melbourne. And you're welcome to attend. I'll probably have a couple of the original True Crime Island slasher t-shirts to give away as lucky door prizes. We don't know. I'm sure I will bring them. I'll also fill my bag with beer coolers and stickers as well, so come on down. Don't forget, I'm on Twitter and Instagram with the handle at truecrimeisland.com. Now I do have a promo this week. It's Hillbilly Horror Stories. It's a once a week podcast that will feature paranormal stories with a twist and I do love the paranormal. Host Jerry Pauly, Ricky Graniger and Tracy Pauly will add a little comment comedy in their discussion of these stories. Jerry is a professional stand-up comedian and Ricky and Tracy, well they aren't, but maybe they should be. Serious enough for the true paranormal fan, but entertaining enough for the casual listener. Get it on iTunes and Stitcher and visit their YouTube page and Facebook page. You know how to get it. So, that's all Islanders. I'm your host Cambo signing off. And as I always say, don't forget to delete your browser history. Good night.
Hey, I'm Jerry, and I'm a comedian. So he thinks. And I'm Tracy, his wife. Um, for now. And we are the host of Hillbilly Horror Stories. We are mostly a paranormal podcast, but we do sprinkle in a little bit of true crime if it's creepy enough, and obviously all things unexplained. But mostly paranormal. Yep, I already said that. It's been said that we are scary enough for the true paranormal fan, but also entertaining and funny enough for the skeptics. Nobody said that. It most certainly did. I got it from a carrier pigeon along with a Candy Crusher quest. Just search for Hillbilly Horror Stories wherever you listen to podcasts and hit the subscribe button.